Um, if you have a Bible, turn with, uh, turn with me this morning uh, to Mark chapter 11 again. Mark chapter 11. And I'm going to go ahead and ask the ushers, if you guys would go ahead and come on up, and uh, you can take the offering, and I'll keep talking as you take the offering. I want to welcome those who are joining us uh, over the internet, and I want to welcome those of you who are visiting us today. As Sean said a little while ago, we're just so glad to have you guys here. We love having visitors, and uh, we're a better church if you decide to stay. So please stay with us. We'd love to have you here. We're in a series on the last days of Jesus Christ as recorded in the Gospel of Mark. By the way, I've, I've heard a lot uh, from a lot of you who are in City Life groups. Uh, you've, you've talked about the fact that this series and then the questions that we provide to go with it, you've said that it has provoked a lot of great discussions in your groups, and I'm thrilled to hear that. If you are not in a City Life group, you really need to look in to joining one or even starting your own group. We'll get you prepared, we'll train you, we'll equip you, all of that, but we'd love for you to get into a City Life group. We think it's one of the best ways to build friendships, relationships, and to grow spiritually. So please consider that, okay? When we get to the passage that we're going to look at today, starting in verse 27 of chapter 11, it is Wednesday of Holy Week. Jesus has two days to live before he's nailed to a Roman cross. He's in the political and the religious capital of Israel, Jerusalem. Yesterday, on Tuesday, He issued a scathing rebuke of the religious leaders in Israel, and he torn through the outer courts of the temple in anger, throwing tables upside down, and he told the religious leaders of Israel that they had turned the temple into a den of robbers. And as you can imagine, that didn't make them very happy. So they began to look for a way to kill Jesus. That was yesterday. The religious leaders of Israel have had time now to process what happened yesterday, and to gather themselves. The passage that we're going to look at today is the first in a series of back-to-back-to-back confrontations with delegations of these religious leaders that will end on Friday with his crucifixion. Now, I'm going to ask you to do something a little different, a little unusual for us. I think the main theme of this particular passage deserves that we stand as we read this passage. And if you would, please stand with me. We're going to put the passage on the screen as usual. And here's what I want you to watch for. I want you to watch for what is the key word in this passage. And if you listen, I'll give you some verbal clues uh, as I read this passage. Verse uh, 27, I'll read it. You guys just follow along uh, as I read. They arrived again in Jerusalem. And while Jesus was walking in the temple courts, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders came to him. By what authority are you doing these things, they asked. And who gave you authority to do this? Jesus replied, I'll ask you one question. Answer me and I will tell you by what authority I am doing these things. John's baptism, was it from heaven or of human origin? Tell me. They discussed it among themselves. They said, if we say from heaven, he'll ask, then why didn't you believe him? But if we say of human origin, Mark adds that they feared the people, for everyone held that John really was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we don't know. Jesus said, neither will I tell you by what authority I am doing these things. This is the word of God. You may be seated. 
Were you able to pick out the keyword? Is the word authority, right? Did you get that? Okay, some of you, I, I was a little curious if you would get it. Uh, it shows up four times in this passage. In this passage, the Greek word for authority is exousia, and it means to have the right to act, the right to determine, the right to decide. That's that's authority, and this is the question that the religious leaders are asking Jesus: By what authority are you doing these things? In other words, destroying the temple and and judging us, the religious leaders. By what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you the authority? To do this. Specifically, this is really a question of moral authority. Who gave you the moral authority to make to do this, to judge us and to destroy the temple? Jesus had declared that these religious leaders and their buddies were nothing but fruitless frauds. Consequently, Israel's religion was hollow. And they're flipping out as a result of Jesus saying that. Who are you to judge that? Now, at the outset, I want to concede that there are some very significant differences between first century Jewish culture and 21st uh, century Western culture. Uh, For one, theirs was a a monotheistic culture. Uh, They did believe that God exists, one God, and they they believed that he had expressed his moral authority over the world through the law and the prophets. So in theory, at least, in theory, at least, there was a God who could have given Jesus authority to do these things, though they were never going to admit that Jesus had that authority. But to the contrary, 21st century Western culture is not monotheistic. Uh, in fact, we're a pluralistic society. We, you know, our, our culture, our society believes that there are many possible gods, okay? And not only are we a pluralistic society, but we're a relativistic society to boot. And so if you, uh, I don't know, let's say that you uh, went down to the campus of uh, USI and you uh, said publicly in some forum there that you believe, uh, let's say that you say that you believe that sex outside of marriage is wrong. It wouldn't be long before someone got in your face and they asked, Who are you to judge that? Who gives you the authority to judge that, right? But here's what's interesting to me is that even though their culture and our culture uh, is very different, the issue of authority, especially as it pertains to moral authority, is as relevant today as it was in the very moment that the Pharisees were asking Jesus about his moral authority. And as I was studying this week, uh, I came across a blog. It was written by a current uh, philosophy student. And it was about whether a person could judge whether a culture was in moral decline or whether it was making moral progress. And I want you to, uh, want you to listen to what he says. And I'm just going to read it. I'm not going to put it up on the screen. Uh, but his thoughts are, I think, reflective of the pluralistic, relativistic culture that we live in today. Here's what he said. He said, in making this determination about whether you could judge, right, whether a a, a culture was in moral decline or making moral progress. He said, in making that determination, I feel that a universal standard for the rightness or wrongness of morals would then have to be established. 
And he says, if morals are arbitrary, are arbitrarily established and independently defined across cultural lines, it is impossible for one group or society to place valid judgment on the morals of others. What would give one society any more authority to declare the correct morality over another society? And then he says this, not only does this authority not exist, but for similar reasons, nothing and no one could possibly be qualified to assign such an authority. Nothing and no one could possibly be qualified to assign such an authority. That's the prevailing thought about moral authority in our culture today. Now, here's where where I'm going with all of this. While it's true that these religious leaders would have readily agreed that there was a moral authority in the world, they were no more prepared to accept that Jesus was that moral authority than Western culture is today. Now, why do I say that? Well, understand, these, these religious leaders had many conversations with Jesus for three years. I mean, they'd had many conversations. But listen to this. Never did they come to Jesus to find out the truth from God. Never. They never came as legitimate seekers. They never came scrutinizing their theology and his words to determine what was right. It was all an attempt to discredit Jesus openly and publicly so that they could uh, have reason to execute him. They weren't spiritually minded. They weren't seeking truth. They hated the truth. Their conclusion, early on, way, way back, we saw this, those of you who were with us uh, last year, when we were back in Mark chapter 3, verse 30, they concluded that Jesus was from Satan, that he had a demon, that he had an unclean spirit, that he was right out of hell, even though for three years Jesus had done miracles and had conversations with them, everything he could do to show them that he was from heaven. They were still locked on and fixed in this immovable position of hard, hypocritical unbelief, okay? So, as I come to this passage, I, I think it teaches us three very important lessons about authority, specifically Jesus' moral authority. And here are the three lessons that I think it teaches us. First, why Jesus' moral authority is good news. Second, I think it teaches us why Jesus' moral authority is uh, bad news. And then, third, how to turn the bad news about Jesus' moral authority into good news. Okay, you got that? Okay, that's where we're going this morning. Now, I want to start with why Jesus' moral authority is good news. The reason that these religious leaders ask Jesus this question about authority in verse 28, they say, who gave you this authority? What authority do you do all these things? The reason that they did that is that they're hoping that here in front of all of the people that are uh, in the temple and that are following uh, Jesus, they're hoping that he will come out and say in front of all of the people what he has said before, that he is his own moral authority because he is fully God. Now, in another conversation with these guys, uh, in the book of John, John said this very thing. He, or he records Jesus saying this very thing. Jesus says, John chapter 10, he says, I and the Father are one. The Jews, 
took up stones again to stone him. These are the religious leaders. Jesus answered them, I showed you many good works from the Father. In other words, miracle. For which of them are you stoning me? The Jews answered him, For a good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy. And because you, being a man, make yourself out to be God. So here's, this is, this is what they want him to say. If they could get Jesus to just say that, that he has the moral authority to judge them and to destroy the temple and to call them fruitless frauds, if, he can, if they can get him to say that he has that authority because he is God, then they could justifiably execute him for blasphemy. Now, before we go on, before we go any further, I want, I want us to recognize that Jesus' claim to be God there in John chapter 10 is what gives him moral authority over all humankind. Now, why is this good news? Here it is. You can write this down. Make a note of this. Jesus' moral authority is good news because it means there is an absolute moral standard. Jesus' moral authority is good news because it means there is an absolute moral standard for all times, in all places, among all peoples, and that moral standard is Jesus himself. Now, even as I say that, uh, I can imagine that uh, some of you probably uh, feel angry about that. Or, or maybe, maybe you just feel incredulous that I would say such a thing. Because that's not, that's not a politically correct thing to say uh, today, is it? Because this declares, if I say that, that particular point declares not only that Christianity is superior to all other religions, but it also declares that Jesus is the moral standard by which all of humanity will be judged. And that just sounds unscientific and outdated to many of you, doesn't it? I know. But I, I want to ask you a question. If, you're, if, you, if you feel that way, I want to just ask you a question. Do you think that it would be a good idea to live in a society in which there were no absolute moral standards? I want you to imagine... Just imagine for a moment that you're a college student. Let's, let's go back to USI. You're a college student at USI. And let's just imagine that you walk into one of your uh, required philosophy classes. Okay? And let's say that the teacher uh, starts the class by saying something very tantalizing. And he says this. He says, I believe that all morality is just personal and subjective and that you can't impose your morality on anyone else. Just say he starts like that. And all of a sudden, he's got your attention because you're so glad that you have a teacher who sees things the same way that you do. Like there are no absolute moral standards. It's all personal. It's all subjective. Nobody can judge, right? It's all up to you. And you're so happy about that. But then he says, I want to share with you my own personal subjective feelings about how I grade in this class. All women will be getting a flunking grade. Ladies, what would your response be to that? Would you be like, well, okay, I mean, that's his right. Is that what you do? 
No, you would be, you'd scream, that's not fair. The problem is you would be imposing your sense of fairness and right and wrong upon him, which you don't believe that you could do in the first place. That's what it would be like to live in a society in which there are no absolute moral standards. In his book, The Brothers uh, Karamazov, Fyodor Dostoevsky has one of the brothers whose name is Ivan. He has the brother declare this. He says, if God does not exist, everything is permitted. And the whole, understand something. The whole history of humanity has shown that to be true. And that without a moral authority and a standard, a society cannot sustain itself. All of human history has proven that. This is one of the premises of the very famous book written by Edward Gibbon. It was called The Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire. And Gibbon observed this. He said, he said, he observed that the leaders of the empire gave in to the vices of strangers. Morals collapsed. And as a result of morals collapsing, laws became oppressive. And the abuse of power made the nation vulnerable to the barbarian hordes. Philosophers throughout human history, all the way back to Plato have argued that where there is no moral authority and standard, democracies are thrown into chaos, the ultimate consequence of which is the rise of tyranny. By the way, okay, this is, let's put a big parenthesis here, okay? What I'm going to say really doesn't have a whole lot to do with what we've been saying so far, but I just want to offer this to you as a freebie. Can I do that? Okay. What I'm going to say is not, let me repeat, it is not my political uh, opinion. But if you read national newspapers, there's an enormous amount of hand wringing about whether Donald Trump would honor the limits placed on his presidency by the Constitution of the United States. Now, again, hear me say this I am stating no opinion about Donald Trump this morning, good or bad. I'm not, I have no opinion. And I don't have any opinion about whether he would or would not honor those limitations. But I am fascinated by the fact that none of those columns that are doing all of that hand wringing about whether he would honor uh, the limits on his presidency by the Constitution, none of those articles have commented on the role that our refusal to accept moral absolutes perhaps is making us ripe for what they're concerned about anyway, a a tyrannical leader. This is what Plato and, and all of them have argued, that democracies ultimately, when morals decline, democracies uh, fail, and it gives rise to a tyrannical leader. But no one is talking about that, about the lack of moral absolutes and how that's preparing us for that. End of parentheses. Now let me go back, Okay. Not only is it impossible for a society to sustain itself without a moral authority and standard, but individual lives lose all meaning without a moral standard too. Some some of you may be familiar with an author by the name of Ravi uh, Zacharias. He's an Indian-born, Canadian-American Christian apologist, very brilliant man. And uh, I want you to listen to what he says. He says that our, our, our lack of moral absolutes is why, we'll put, the, we'll put it up here on the screen, we have become the impoverished inheritors of a culture where absolutes are debunked as the gasp of an antiquated thought pattern. It is not at all surprising that in Toynbee's study of history, he's talking about uh, Arnold J. 
Toynbee, and, and he was a British historian, and he, uh, he wrote just a phenomenal work called The Study of History. Uh, he's saying it's not at all surprising that in Toynbee's study of history, we are the first of 21 civilizations to attempt civility without a moral point of reference. To compound this further, we have come to these conclusions through a process that only causes us to sink deeper into the abyss of nihilism where life has lost all meaning. Not only can't you sustain sustain a society without moral absolutes, you can't sustain a life with meaning without moral absolutes either. On the other hand, I want you to listen to the psalmist as he speaks about the law of God, which Jesus perfectly embodied. Listen to what he says. He says that the law of the Lord is perfect. And notice what he says. Reviving the soul. The thesis of our day is that modern people are allergic to the law of God and their souls are dying because the law is an oppressive thing. But the psalmist says that the reason that we're losing our souls is because we've abandoned the moral standards of the law of God. Because Jesus is the embodiment of the law, when we submit our lives to him, our souls that have shriveled and atrophied from cultural relativism are revived from the meaningless nihilism of our day. And we find that life has meaning and purpose after all. This is why Jesus' authority is good news. Because it means that there is an absolute moral standard upon which you can build a society and upon which you can build a life with meaning. All right? That's why his moral authority is good news. I want to go back to the story. Let's go back to the passage. The religious authorities think that they have Jesus in their trap now that they've asked him this question. They're hoping that he will just say, uh, my authority is from me, myself. I am God. I am fully God. That's what they hope. But Jesus was way too wise for that. He counters in verses 29 and 30. Jesus replied, I will ask you one question. Answer me. And I'll tell you by what authority I am doing these things. John's baptism, was it from heaven or was it of human origin? Tell me. This is, understand something, that this is precisely what we mean when we say that you find yourself between a rock and a hard place. Jesus doesn't resent the fact that they've asked this question. He just knows their phony intention. Again, they, you know, they never sought the truth. They never wanted reality. So he asks this question about John. Now, what, why? Why this question about John? Well, let me just remind you that John the Baptist uh, was the forerunner of Jesus. He was in the wilderness uh, before Jesus uh, appeared on the scene, preaching repentance and preaching preparation for the coming of the Messiah. He was trying to prepare Israel for the coming of their Messiah. And, and, and when he saw Jesus for the first time, he even declared, he said, that's the Messiah. Jesus is the Messiah. Now, here's why Jesus asked this question. If these religious guys, see, they thought they had him in a trap, but he's got them in a bigger trap. Now, if these religious guys were to say that John's ministry is from God, then they have to also admit that Jesus is the Messiah because that's what John said. On the other hand, 
If they say the ministry of John is not from God, then they've got a real problem because all of the people around them knew and believed that John was a real prophet from God. So you see, it's a package deal. You can't take John without Jesus, and you can't throw away Jesus without throwing away John. So they have a huge problem. And I think it's funny the way that Mark describes their dilemma here. You can see them. They all kind of huddle together around each other. And uh, they're, they're trying to, you know, they're trying to cipher this out. And they're talking to each other. And, you know, if we say this, this is what he'll say. If we say this, this is what he'll say. And in the end, all the religious leaders can say is, we don't know. And don't you know that that must have come out hard? Because, I mean, it makes them look really stupid. It was their job to know this stuff. And so Jesus says, then I'm not going to tell you where I get my authority either. And I want to tell you something. That's a horrible place to be. You do not want to get to the point that Jesus says, I've said everything I'm going to say to you. You you don't want to get to that place. These religious leaders' response, I think, says something to us about why Jesus' moral authority is bad news. And you'll see why I keep putting putting that in quotes. Why is Jesus' moral authority bad news? These guys, as I've said a couple of times, they're not asking Jesus about his authority in a sincere manner. They knew he had moral authority. They'd seen his miracles. They'd heard him preach. They'd seen the crowds. They knew it. What was the issue? The issue was... And see if this doesn't sound relevant. See if this doesn't sound familiar. The issue was just this. They didn't want to submit to his authority. Because if they did, they would lose their power. That's that's it. If they submit to his authority, they lose power. And so they didn't want to do it. And I don't don't know if you've experienced this. I have experienced it a lot. I, I would imagine many of you have as well. Often when you talk to people, uh, about Jesus, ask them what they believe, maybe you even uh, share the gospel with them. Often, those people will come up with the same answer about Jesus that the Pharisees came up with here. They'll say, I don't know. I just, I don't know. I don't know what I think about Jesus. It's an answer that allows them to sit on the fence about Jesus. But the real issue down deep, the real reason that people say, I don't know, I don't know what I think about Jesus. The reason that people would say something like that about something as important as Jesus is that they don't want to submit to his authority either because it means that they will lose their moral autonomy, their ability to decide what is right and wrong for themselves. And that's why Jesus' authority is bad news to some people. Jesus' authority, Jesus' moral authority is bad news because to recognize it forces you to submit to his authority and standard. That's why it's bad news. And for many people, moral autonomy is just too high a price to pay. 
And maybe you're there today. Uh, You've been coming, you've been interested in learning about Jesus. But over time, the truth has dawned on you that if you come to the decision that he is the king, you're going to have to submit to his moral authority. And that frightens you because you don't want to give up your autonomy. Here's the third point today. The third point, how to turn the bad news about Jesus' moral authority into good news. How to turn the bad news about Jesus' moral authority into good news. If you're here today and you feel like, man, if I submit to his lordship, I'm going to have to, man, I'm going to have to give up my moral authority. That's too much. That's too much. I think when people hear the word authority today, they confuse it with a cold-hearted, uncaring authoritarianism. And perhaps that's how some of you feel. And maybe you have some, I don't know, maybe you've got some mental image of someone in your mind who was like that in your life, a parent, a coach, a boss, someone that was, you know, uh, wasn't just that they had authority, it was that they were, uh, they were authoritarian and they were cold-hearted about it. It's fascinating to realize that when Jesus chose uh, an image for his kingdom, a logo, can we say it that way? Can we say that Jesus chose a logo for his kingdom? He chose a logo for his kingdom that was absolutely the opposite of a cold, hard, uncaring authoritarianism. He chose as his logo the cross for his kingship and for his kingdom. And may I suggest that the way that you turn the bad news about Jesus' moral authority into good news is that you replace the image that you have in your mind of cold-hearted authoritarianism with the image of Jesus hanging on a Roman cross. There, the moral authority of the world out of love died for you because you nor I could ever live up to his moral standard. And his death made it possible for you to be forgiving, to be forgiven, so that by believing in him, you could, by grace, be saved from the nihilism of our culture and the nihilistic eternity that you would otherwise experience. Let me say it clearly. Here's how to turn the bad news of Jesus' moral authority into good news. Look at Jesus on the cross. All of a sudden, what seems bad seems so good. And when we, as a church, celebrate communion, this is what we do. We look at Jesus on the cross. And we remind ourselves of what he's done for us and on our behalf. And so today, we're going to do this together as a church. We're going to take communion. And I'd like to ask uh, ushers, if you guys would, go ahead and come on up with the communion elements. And they're going to pass them out to you. And when they pass them out to you, I just want you to hold them in your hand. We're going to take communion together as a church. Just hold them in your hand. And then uh, when they're done passing them out, uh, I'll come back up and we'll take it together. The band's going to play here for just a moment while they're passing all of the elements out. But just hold them. And as you're holding them, would you just do this? If you have an image in your mind of someone 
who is cold-hearted and authoritarian, mean-spirited with it, would you just, on the TV screen of your mind, would you just put Jesus on the cross there and just look at him there and think about what that means about his moral authority over your life? Would you do that? Ushers, go ahead and come on up. Pass the elements out.